Good morning. So good to be with you today, and uh, what a privilege it is to come. And I've worshipped with you on a couple of occasions, a couple of occasions my wife and I have. Actually, our family was with you on a Christmas Eve service, not this year, but last year. And uh, what I do with Soul Leader in our ministry, which is 15 years old now, is such a privilege because I get to speak at all different churches all over the place. We work with around 200 or so leaders, pastors, churches all over and uh, get to minister in those places. And it's such a blessing to be able to see, like a little bit like an apostle going from place to place and seeing what God's doing in various places. And I hope you know, I think you do, the amazing leaders that you have here. Uh, Neil and Casey and, and us have known each other now for quite a few years. I don't even remember how many years, probably seven, eight years, something like that. A good long period of time getting to know Tom and Aaron. But your leaders love you deeply. You know that, right? And it's hard to do ministry today. Um, one of the things I just realized is I, I see s- literally hundreds of churches is how hard it's becoming in our culture as it continues to change to just be faithful to the gospel and to be faithful to God's word. And when you have leaders that do that and love you, uh, you've got an amazing thing. So I hope you know that. Pray for your leaders. Keep praying for them. Be the church that stays a strong church no matter what happens. And as Neil and I talked, he, he called and we talked about like me coming to speak and what we should talk about. And it was sort of interesting because uh, God's been teaching me some things in my life in some deeper ways than I've ever experienced them this past year or so. And when you go to speak at a church, there's something that's a little more enlivening. When you can go and bring a real lighthearted, happy, fun, funny message even. And if, when Neil and I talked and, and I realized a lot of the things you as a church have been going through over the last year or more, um, this subject of loss just came up. And I said, well, Neil, there's a, there's a message God laid on my heart this year, and I feel like it might really resonate and connect with Coast, because I, I know of many of the losses that you've had. And, um, you know, even up till this very moment where right now, you know, you've got one of your members in the hospital, and uh, Carolyn service yesterday, and God bless you all. Just loss is all around us. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it, but it's all around us. And if we don't know what to do with it, that's when it creates problems. And so that's why I thought this message this morning, how to deal with losses in our lives, could be something that's really, really significant and helpful to us. Uh, Let me share with you a little bit uh, of how God connected me with this subject over the last couple of years or so. I was meeting with my spiritual director, which if you don't know, is kind of like a counselor, a person that kind of uh, offers you perspective on what God's doing in your life, a wise person, a mentor, a sage, if you will. And I, I said that I was just struggling with loss. And he asked me, he said, well, give, give me an example of what that loss would look like. And so I told him that earlier that year, this was in 2004, so almost two years ago, now. I had resigned as the lead pastor from a church. It was called Tree of Life. And it was a church that was a church plant church merge that we had brought together two churches. And it was going really well and it was thriving and people loved it. And good things were happening. These churches merged together in 2011. And I had been working with a previous group of people since 2008. I'd invested six years of my life into something that when I chose to resign from Tree of Life as their lead pastor, I was leaving it behind. 
that was hard. People I'd grown to know and love and I was just feeling the need to go and do what I do with Soul Leader full time and I just couldn't do both any longer. That was a loss. He asked me, he said, well, what else? Is there something else that came up? And I said, well, well, yeah. I said, our second child has just finished college. And while we'd thought he was moving back home, uh, he went to Biola. He graduated as a couple years ago now. It's Kyle that's on the right side there. Um, picture of our family, my wife, Darlene, our daughter, Mallory, and our son, Kyle. Mallory had graduated from Biola previously, a couple years. So she'd moved to San Francisco when she was gone. Kyle, we thought, would be graduating and moving back home. And he'd be kind of like the kind of kid that would, you know, a couple years down the road, be sitting in his underwear in front of the TV gaming. And you need to, like, you know, kick him out and say, go out, get a real job. He graduated on Friday, uh, moved out on Saturday, started work full time as a computer programmer on Tuesday. He was gone. You know, there's a part of that that's like good news. I'm like, yes, you know, he's out, he's gone, he's independent. As parents, you want that for your children. And yet, as my wife Darlene and I talked, that part of our life was over. Our two kids were out of the house. Empty nest. He asked me, he said, what else? Are there any other losses that have been going on in your life? And I said, well, yeah, our ministry was soul leader. We're working with the church, Victory Baptist Church in Anaheim. And we had a 10-month project working as intentional interim pastor there and a team helping them transition and find a new leader. And we grew to love this church. And it was only one of the projects we were working on. But when you're somewhere everywhere for 10 months and, and you just get to enjoy and love these people and then you have to say goodbye, they called a new pastor. It was wonderful. Everybody was celebrating, but I had to go. It was a good, it was a good kind of loss, but yet it was still a loss. He said, Any, anything else going on with you? And I said, well, yeah, I said, I've been to the doctor and the doctor said, like, take a little test. And I did this adrenal stress profile test. So if you don't like medical things, you might not want to look at the screen right now. Um, but that's a picture of your adrenal gland. Our adrenal glands just sit right above our kidneys. They're like little walnut shaped things. And what I learned was when you are under a lot of stress and you're giving out a lot of energy, that your adrenal glands kind of grow to meet the need. The bad news is when you are under too much stress and they grow and grow, they don't necessarily go back. And so I was experiencing adrenal fatigue, which is kind of on your way to adrenal exhaustion. And if you keep going at that, people even experience adrenal failure. And so I said, I'm tired and I'm weak all the time. And I just learned that my adrenals are like really worn out and I can't keep, keep running this hard anymore. He said, well, Michael, is there anything else? And I said, yeah. I said, my mom. Uh, my mom is kind of struggling. Her memory has been going. At, at this point, she was living on her own. And then this last year, my mom had a stroke in February, almost a year ago now, that we took her to the neurologist. And the neurologist looked at the scans of her brain and said, she has massive brain degeneration. He looked at her and said, do you live on her, your own? And she said, yes. He said, no more. And at that point, we became her caregivers. And I had to take my mom and all of the things going on in her life and figure out how to control that and run that. And over the last year, her dementia has gone almost to the maximum amount. She's gone from walking to using a cane to using a walker to being in a wheelchair. And now she can't walk. She has four compression fractures in her lumbar spine. She still knows who we are, thank God, but her mind is almost completely gone. All short-term memory is completely gone. Long-term memory is still there. But we've watched my mom die a long, slow death. as She's in hospice right now. 
And again, that's a normal thing. We all die. We all face our mortality. We know that. And yet, when you get thrown that, it's hard to know what to do with it. It's another loss. So my director said to me, he goes, Michael, um, I asked you about a loss. You didn't tell me about a loss. He said, that's a constellation of losses. And I'm kind of like, oh, thank you? Like, did I really need to know? Because, well, it helped me understand that. You get the feeling? Like, now I'm like burdened with the constellation of losses that I've got. And it's even more stress. But it woke me up to a real reality. Life will always throw losses at you. And when it does, really, you're presented with a temptation. And here's what's interesting. You know, you're presented with a temptation that um, is, is something that is a horrible place to be. Um, the ancient church fathers called it acedia, not a word we use very much, but acedia doesn't have really even a good translation in the English language if you don't know what the word means. And it's really this, it's when you get to the place in your life when you just don't care anymore. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you can probably relate to what I mean by that. When there's so much stress, so many trials, so much challenge, so much loss, you get to the place where you just don't care anymore. But notice I said it's a temptation, okay? It's not a sin, because temptation isn't a sin until you live in it, dwell in it, give into it, and decide, yeah, this is what I want. But we're all thrown this temptation, and we've got to do something about that. Your other option is to learn and practice what the Bible calls mourning, mourning. And that's really what I, what I talk about this morning, okay? We're going to look at a Bible passage and understand more deeply what the Bible says about mourning. It's the process of feeling and expressing deep grief or sorrow. It's a process of healing and letting go. It's giving yourself permission to be sad. Do you ever just do that? Sometimes we don't, we're hard on ourselves. We don't give ourselves permission to feel what we need to feel. Grief is the toughest pain we have to deal with. It's the most difficult for us to enter into voluntarily, which is the only way to get into it. You have to choose it. Yet mourning is the way God has designed for us to deal with loss. So I want you to think with me here for a second, because every single one of us experience this, yet we're all experiencing it differently. Okay, so just kind of brainstorm with me a little bit. What are the losses that we have or might experienced in our life? Okay, so for you, think, what, what have I experienced over the last week, month, year? Some of you know very obviously what that loss is, but usually it's even multiple things, okay? It's not only the loss of persons that leads to grief, but the loss of ideals, of visions, of plans, of places, of relationships, and even youth itself, Right? Our lives are full of losses. So just think about the, the vast array. Death of a loved one. Death of a dream. Death of a season of life, like caring for children or employment or school. Death of a relationship. Death of a plan. Divorce. Rape. Abuse. Failure. Not attaining the love or approval of a significant person. Infertility. Not being the person you wish you were. Someone we love who betrays us. Cataclysmic events. Loss of health. Financial problems. Feeling stuck in a job or a career. Not getting accepted to the school you desire. Now, if you're taking notes or you got a pen with you, 
just take a second and jot down what comes to mind for you. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to share it, but for you to just identify. If you can jot that down, there's something healing that begins even in writing it down. Okay, you don't have a pen, just call it your mind. What is it? What do I think are a loss or some losses that I've experienced most recently? Just take a minute to do that. Now, sometimes loss is so difficult because we fail to distinguish between what might be called good loss and bad loss or good suffering and bad suffering. Say, that sounds kind of weird. I don't don't understand. What what is good loss or, or bad loss? Well, think of it this way. If you walk to your car tonight in a dark parking lot and a guy with a mask walked up to you, took out a knife, stabbed you in the stomach, took all your money and left you in an unconscious state, you would call him a mugger right? Someone would call the police and they would try to find the criminal. But if you left this gathering this morning, drove down the street to the local hospital and a guy with a mask came to you in a brightly lit room, took out a knife, cut your stomach open, took all your money and left you in an unconscious state, you would call him a doctor (laughs) and thank you, thank him for helping you, right? One is a mugging, the other is a surgery, right? Suffering is a lot like that, okay? There is good suffering and destructive suffering at the hands of evil people. And it's really important to make that distinction. The key is being able to tell the difference between the two and apply the right kind of experience to each. And sadly, too often in the church, those of us who have been mugged, if you will, have been told that God is trying to teach us a lesson or that we're going to go through it as a result of our own sin or that it's part of the growth process, any of you ever experienced that? You're going through a hard time and someone kind of tries to fix you? There's ways to spiritualize and kind of even hide behind our faith. Um, the, the kind of answer you, sometimes you get where everything is just, oh, praise God, he is good. Now, we know God's good. I'm, I'm not arguing about that. But that's not exactly what you need to hear when you're going through a loss. Or something bad happens and people quote a verse for you. Some of the famous verses of that, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I, I don't want to belittle that. I want to rejoice. I just might not want to hear that when I just lost somebody. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good that those who love God. I believe that. We have a big picture of that hanging in our family room. Romans 8, 28, okay? I just don't want to use that as a weapon to throw at someone when they're going through feelings that they don't know what to do with and I think they should be feeling someone else because I might feel uncomfortable with their pain. Pete Scazzaro, pastor in New York who wrote a book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, says this, people in our churches minimize their failures and disappointments. The result is that for many today, at least in prosperous North America, there is a widespread inability to face pain. This has led to an overall feeling of superficiality and a lack of profound compassion. Let's not be that. Let's not be the church that lacks compassion. Let's understand and relate and empathize for what people are going through. Bottom line is, I don't think we understand the need for mourning. We don't understand the need for mourning. And yet the word mourning, if you were to do your own Bible study, is found in the Bible over a hundred times. Okay, It's all over the place. 
A couple well-known places, Isaiah 53, verse 3, a prophecy about Jesus when it says, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Or on the cross when Jesus just says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see examples of mourning and crying out and grieving, and sometimes we miss it, that this is a process we're invited into as well. Well, let's look at the Bible and see as we walk through a well-known story of what this might look like. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, We're going to look at verses 13 to 23. Okay, 2 Samuel 12, starting at verse 13. And to set up the story, which many of you would know, of course, it's the story of David and Bathsheba, which is a pretty intense story in the whole biblical narrative, right? David looks down one night as he's on his roof and looks down and sees on a lower roof a very beautiful woman kind of skinny dipping in the jacuzzi. And he decides, I want her. And so he takes her to himself they have relations, she conceives, and now there's a child, and now there's a mess. So what do I do now? Well, she's married. So he has her husband Uriah come home from the battle, and he tries to get them together, and then that doesn't work. So instead, he has his commander send Uriah out to the front lines and literally has him killed. So now there's adultery, and there's murder, and there's an even greater mess. So he marries her, even though it doesn't feel very good to her to be involved with this thing. She bears him the son, And we know it displeases the Lord. And the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David. And here's where we pick up the story in verse 13. Okay, 2 Samuel 12. And let's ask this question. What can we learn about mourning from the life of David? As we look at this specific example, what can we learn about mourning? It says in verse 13, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He knew it. He felt the conviction. We know from scripture that David was a man after God's own heart, thankfully. And here's the lesson. What can we learn about mourning? Mourning is necessary because sin, because of sin and the fallen world we live in, right? You know that. I know that. We live in a fallen, broken, messed up world. When people ask like, why do these things exist? Why is there suffering? Why is there sickness? Why is there cancer? Really, the only logical answer is because of this very thing. It's because of sin. And sin created this fallenness in humanity, a separateness from the way God wanted his creation to be. And because of that, we're broken people. Now, by God's grace, God's putting us back together and he's redeeming us. And that's the good news, right? There's always good news as as part of this. But the reality is everywhere you turn, we're facing the consequences of sin and living in a broken and fallen world. You got to understand that. David got to the place where he's convicted and he understood that. But let me make one really important point here. And for those that are suffering and those that are experiencing loss, this is huge. You got to understand the difference between sin that's done by us and sin that's done to us. Okay? Or for you personally, sin that I'm responsible for, my fault, and someone who sinned against me. If you don't understand that, what you might do is end up blaming yourself for things that other people have done to you that were not your fault. Does that make sense? That's such an important point to understand in this as we look and understand sin and the way that it exists. Well, let's go on. In verse 13, it says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Okay, that's good news. 
Verse 14, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. So what do we learn about mourning from that? I think mourning is the best response to loss. Just, just think of all the possible responses to loss. Okay, there are, there are many responses that we can take. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a, a book on death and dying many years ago. And then her and David Kessler wrote a book called On Grief and Grieving. Really important processes. They talk about the five stages of grief that you go to, go through. The first one is just denial, right? I, I'm not even going to accept it. That, that's a possible response. And you go to anger. Etc. And there are all these, there's these feelings and emotions you work through, and they always just don't go in a neat order, but there's all kinds of possible responses. Well, here's an important lesson to learn. If you don't process your losses by mourning them, you could very well end up with emotional consequences that you don't want to have to deal with. Okay? Depression is probably the most likely one. Uh, for me personally, I like to say depression is my pathology of choice. Um, I've had issues. I've gone through eight months of clinical depression back in 1991, went through a really difficult circumstance. Don't have time to tell you about it today, but if you ever invite me back, I'll share that story with you. Um, and to know that when we go through loss, which it was for me, very difficult time, and I didn't process it well, I ended up in eight months of clinical depression. In fact, it, that's called a reactive depression, okay? It's not an endogenous or biological depression that's about the chemicals in our brain and something that medications for depressions can help. This is about relationships and losses in our life that we haven't paid attention to, we haven't mourned, and then our, we react to it. Our body and our brain literally react to it. So maybe the number one consequence of not mourning a loss could be the potential to just go into depression. We don't want to do that. That's why mourning becomes such a wonderful healing gift that God allows us to walk through. Let's go on in verse 16. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Now this seems really weird, but I love it. Because it tells us that mourning involves outward actions. It involves outward actions. What outward actions did you see David do here? He, he, he prayed, right? He fasted. It affected his, his diet, the way that he ate. And he chose lack of comfort. I'm going to just lay on the ground. There was something about the outward action that was meaningful to the process of mourning. Now, I'm always amazed that we hold funerals, memorials when someone dies but we also need to mourn other things. Um, you know, too often there's a, there's a funeral, a memorial, and then there's a reception afterwards. And there's this kind of spirit like, it's done. Get over it. But that's not true. We don't give the space, right, to allow the mourning and grief to last as long as it needs to in the good spirit that God would want it to so that healing can take place. That keeps us staying in a place of denial and protest for an even longer time. Bottom line, we need to learn to feel our feelings. This is something I love, how the ancient Hebrews physically expressed their grief. If you, if you study this at all and see what they actually did, all throughout Scripture, there's some really bizarre means, but they knew how to mourn. Just a few examples from Scripture. Uh, they tore their clothes, which was a universal sign among the Hebrews, signifying grief and loss. 
Uh, they put on sackcloth, which was a black, coarse article similar to a grain sack, usually made of goat's hair. I just like to wear that for a while, but it's uncomfortable, right? There's a reason for that. They would remove jewelry. They, their head might be covered. They would go barefoot for a time. They would put ashes, dirt, dust on themselves. Those are some of the clothing things they did or appearance things. Actions, they would fast. They would sometimes involve instruments. There would be weeping and wailing, groaning, beating the chest, bowing the head, lifting up hands, lying or sitting in silence. Um, and maybe one of the most fascinating traditions in the latter part of the Old Testament, they would actually pay professional mourners. They were generally women and took an important place in these rituals. They were known as the mourning women or skillful women. You can read about it in Jeremiah 9.17. Or the singing women embellished the funeral, funeral rites with skillfully contrived dirges and eulogies. So, so there's one, right? It's like, uh, I don't feel like mourning. I don't, I don't have the time to mourn. Hey, let me just hire you. You come mourn for us, right? But there's something in that, isn't there? To show how important this practice is. And that sort of like like attracts like or it's contagious when you're around people that know how to do something. It just does that. And so I'm not suggesting we do that today or bring it back. I'm just saying we got to give place and space for mourning when it's appropriate and when we're experiencing loss. Ecclesiastes 7, uh, 2 to 4 says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. Think about that. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. It's okay to be sad and tell your face to be sad and to not feel like you have to put a smile on. That's okay. I heard a story, for, this is actually from David Kessler, who co-authored the book uh, Grief and Grieving with uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and I believe it was from a community in Africa, but this community, when there was a great loss, like a death or something in the family, the entire village or community had to change something about their house that was obvious. So think about it. So someone dies and the person or the, the loved ones who remain, they come out into the neighborhood and they look and everything has changed. You see what that does? Now you're not the only one that's suffering anymore. You're not the only one that knows you've just lost a loved one. Every person on your street, in your village, in your neighborhood has done something to change their home, their outside, so that it's obvious that they're in it with you. Isn't that awesome? That is such a beautiful picture of what a community of God's people could be like as we mourn together. Verse 17. Keep going through the passage. So the elders of his house arose and went to him, to David, to raise him up from the ground. They're uncomfortable with him laying on the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food for them, with them. Verse 18. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. What do we learn about mourning from that? I think we learned that it might not be understood by those around us. Mourning and our grieving and even our losses might not be understood by those around us. 
After I went through that clinical depression back in 1991 that I mentioned, I, I, I started to learn a little bit about this. Not very much, but I realized that it wasn't good to try to fake it like put on a happy face every day. So I decided to just be honest and I needed to remind myself, I, I would even do things, I'd give myself permission to just be sad. Like I said, some days I would wear black. Um, other days I would just choose not to smile. Uh, but one of the things I did, I, I chose to not lie. So when people said, hey Michael, how are you doing? I wouldn't answer, I'm fine, I'm great. I'm, our little pat answers that we normally give. I would honestly answer, I'm not doing very well or I'm just feeling sad today or maybe even more specific and share what a loss was, and I would do that. The amazing thing to me is how often I would do that, and people would come, you know, down a hallway or something, hey, Michael, how you doing? And I'd be like, I'm not doing well today. And they'd be go, oh, great, see you later. <laughs> that happened multiple times to me. And what that told me is, is people aren't bad people. They just miss it. They, they don't take the time to understand what you're going through, and we're not used to processing pain and loss with people occasionally I'd get someone that would stop and go, I'm sorry, do you need to talk about that? Or if it was a believer, you know, can I, can I pray for you? It's a good lesson to be able to be, do, be honest about your feelings. And when someone says, how you're doing, how are you doing? It's okay to say, I'm not doing well. And to be honest about it. And sure, bring God into it and what God's teaching you and, you know, uh, you can use that as a testimony, but it feels so good to our soul when we can be honest about what we're processing in the depths of our soul, right? What bonds us as followers of Jesus living in community is our brokenness. Our brokenness can bond us. And here's a little thing that's so important to understand. Mourning is only done in community. You can't mourn all by yourself. Mourning is a relational experience. That's why it says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You have to do it in community. And I think for another thing, that's why God put tear ducts in our eyes. Think about it. Because if they were somewhere on our backside, no one would know when we were hurting. But tear ducts are in our eyes and when we get to the place where we cry, someone is looking at us or should be looking into our eyes and as we're crying, we should be looking at them. Then we know we're not alone and our tears are seen and heard. It goes on in verse 20. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. That helps me to know that mourning is for a time. Mourning is for a time. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. It's for a time. It's not forever. There's no set time. There's no normal amount of time. People say, people say well, how long should I mourn this? There's no answer. It, only you will know. It's a process. The, the key is give yourself the grace to take the time you need to go through the process. God will help you to know how much time it needs. And give time to others. Don't put expectations on them about how long it needs to take. Finishing it up, verse 20, then he went to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead, so why should I fast? 
Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Kind of last lesson here is mourning will change our perspective, not the circumstances. We'll change our perspective, but not the circumstances. Romans 5, 3 to 5 helps us know that good suffering has a purpose when it says, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That's so encouraging. And in John 11, we kind of learn that mourn is a love word. Mourn's a love word. We mourn over loss of that which is valuable to us. When the Jews saw Jesus weeping over Lazarus' death, they said, see how he loved him. Isn't that good? They knew. It was about love. We mourn because we love. And loss strikes us at the heart of that. We love and something's taken away. Something's different. Something's changed. So what are some things that you can do? I wanted, I wanted to just close and leave you with a few practical things that you might do in your own lives. Hopefully you've thought about one or two or more losses that you have experienced or are experiencing or some maybe even will experience. What can you do? A couple practical things. Number one, designate a period of time to spend mourning. Literally like block out some time. Give yourself some space, okay? Usually not just a day, really more like several weeks or months. Um, and the goal is to just allow yourself to be sad, grieve over the losses in your life. You, you need to change the pace of your life to do this. You can't keep usually the same kind of very full, hectic pace that most of us keep. During this time, avoid feeling pressured by others to be happy. Allow yourself to remain in a process of mourning as long as you need to. It's a time when you can review your loss. And, and when you've given yourself some space, some suggestions are just talk about it openly. Think about it thoroughly. Write about it. Like journaling is such a good thing. Write about it reflectively. Pray about it intensely. See, you need the space to talk and to think and to write and to pray. Second suggestion is allow yourself to cry. Allow yourself to cry. If you've got difficulty crying, maybe you need to watch a sad movie or something or read a story uh, that you know is sad that'll prompt those deep-seated emotions uh, in your soul. And I know like, one of the things uh, that people loved about Extreme Makeover Home Edition was that it always made you cry, right? You could watch and just go, oh, this family, it's amazing. So maybe you need a little prompting by something or, or reading a book or whatever you need to do because some of us have feelings that are a bit shut off. They don't get used very often. So as you watch or read, allow yourself to feel the sadness. And if it brings you to the point of tears, just allow the tears to flow. When I took over my mom's affairs, one of the things we did was just move all the boxes of papers and stuff that you do. And we moved them into our garage. And my wife went to bed one night and I just felt like I got to go through one more box. And I went through a box of papers and I came across her calendars and it was her she saved her monthly calendars you know the month at a glance kind of calendars and I sat there on our family room couch going through these calendars and she had a number but I went through the calendars of the last two years in the last two years of her life she only had one thing on her calendar every month one day a month at lunchtime Michael it was the day we had lunch together 
And it was the only thing on her calendar for two years every single month. And I saw that and I just lost it. And I just cried. And I couldn't stop crying. I, I cried for about a half hour, 45 minutes. And I'm like, I got to go to bed. I'm crying a lot. So I went to bed and I laid in bed and then I started crying again. I couldn't stop crying. And I just let myself cry. And I was like wailing, crying. And Darlene woke up and she goes, what's wrong, honey? And I told her. And she just rolled over and held me as I cried for probably 20 minutes more. You got to give yourself permission to just feel the loss of whatever that is and let it go. God will meet you in that place. Your loved ones will hopefully meet you in that place. Your church community needs to meet you in that place. Third suggestion, read the Psalms of Lament. The Psalms of Lament are really amazing. They're not the ones we like to hang out in. Okay, those were the Psalms that were written to express a great deal of emotion. And if you didn't know, more than half of the 150 Psalms are classified as laments. You can go through your Bible, open up, and usually it'll tell you at the beginning of the Psalm, a Psalm of lament. Those were meant for grief and loss and emotion. They pay attention to the reality that life can be hard and difficult and sometimes even brutal. They take note of the apparent absence of God what feels like the absence of God. They notice when circumstances seem to say that God is not good, then cry out to God for comfort and care. They wrestle with God's loyal, faithful love. Since God is good, why is he not doing something? A couple examples, Psalm 43. Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Psalm 77. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? See, even the David or the other psalmist, they understood loss and they honestly cried out to God. And that's in your Bible. Sometimes that helps us. Psalm 42, tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 88, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths, Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Do you ever feel like that? The psalmist did. It's in our Bible, and I think that's a good thing. Read the Psalms of Lament. One last one. Uh, Find a friend or a group that you can mourn with in community. You know, hopefully here at Coast, you're, you're part of a group or you have some friends that you can just find and say, you know, I'm in this low place and can I just hang out with you and be with you? And sometimes I might not say anything and other times I might need to talk the whole time. I just need some people that'll listen, that'll pray, that'll lay a hand on a shoulder, that'll give me a hug, that'll let me cry and to know that that's going to be okay. Mourning was not meant to be done alone. So find a safe place where you can look into people's eyes as you share the pain and hurt you're experiencing. Grief is this liminal space where God can fill the tragic gap with something new and totally unexpected. Yet the process cannot be rushed. Amen? Do you know that? It can't be rushed. So don't rush it. Don't try. And don't try to rush anyone else's grief around you as they experience loss. And while this might seem like kind of a downer message, downer sermon, it is not meant to be that at all. Because I really believe if we enter into what the Bible calls mourning and we're able to look at some of the great examples throughout Scripture that are right there staring us in the face, we will move through loss well the way God intended us to. Is it easy? No. Is it fun? No. It's hard, but God meant for us to move through it and to do it in community as the church of God, supporting each other all the way through. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, thank you for being present with us in the midst of life's most hurtful and difficult losses, things that sometimes are even unexplainable. God, I ask that you would be with each one here as we've thought of some losses this morning. There are some losses just so present in our midst right now. God, I lift up Arch to you, losing his, his dear wife. Uh, that's just an example I know fresh in many of the minds here, many of the folks here this morning. God bless him. Thank you for his spirit. Thank you for the way he's called to do ministry and to move on. And in the midst of the wonderful teaching he does, I pray that you would bless him as he grieves and mourns the loss of Carolyn. And while we rejoice and know that she's with you, and for the other, uh, others of us who have losses, we know there's goodness when we love you and follow you, yet it doesn't take away the pain of what we experience here. So thank you for walking with us, with your grace, with mercy, with kindness, even with joy. Put people in our lives that can be that balance to the loss in a good way that allows us to feel the feelings not to be in denial about them, but to feel them deeply and yet to move to the other side where our life can be a testimony of God's grace and God's love. So help us to shine with that in the midst of it all. God, watch over this church, the losses it's experienced in over many months now, even over a year. I pray that you would walk with each one and help us to learn what you want us to learn. Help us to stay close to you and feel your closeness. <laughs> And know that we can worship you even out of that place. In Jesus' name, amen.